0: Welcome to Network Capital TV Sahil, um, we're stoked to have you. There are almost 100 questions that people had about your career choices from sports to finance to public policy. Could you briefly tell us about who you are and what do you do today?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, f- first off, thank you for having me. Really uh, excited to be a part of this and to pay it forward to all the young people that are that are looking to make the next step in their personal career. Um, so, so as you mentioned, Sahil Bloom, I'm a vice president at a private equity fund based in the. San Francisco Bay Area in Palo Alto specifically, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. I've been with the firm about six years. Prior to that was at Stanford, uh, right in Palo Alto as well, where I studied economics as an undergrad and then stayed on and did a master's in public policy. I also played on the baseball team while I was at Stanford, so I had quite a full college experience, uh, which, which was incredible. Uh, family lives in Boston, Massachusetts, where I grew up. My father's a professor at at Harvard University, uh, so I grew up right just outside Cambridge. Um, parents, uh, well, my, my mother's from India, so ha- have spent a lot of time in India uh, in my childhood and still have a lot of family there. Uh, and uh, just excited to chat today and and tell everyone a little bit more about myself and and hopefully provide some value for folks as as they launch into their careers.
0: Sure. Just connect the dots. I mean, um, how how did you end up in private equity, and why did you end up in in the world of finance?
1: Yeah, well, I, I would say I had a pretty non traditional route into getting into the world of finance. Uh, you know, m- most people, I would say, have some sort of grand strategy behind their career in, in getting into the world of private equity. I candidly didn't even know what it was um, until, you know, I, I kind of came into my last year at school. I had played baseball my whole life, uh, had always tried to be well-rounded academically and athletically, uh, was fortunate enough to, to play baseball in college. And, you know, that entailed quite a bit from a training perspective for, for folks who are familiar with, you know, athletics at a high level. There's a lot of work that goes into it and a lot of training that candidly detracts from your ability to take on internships or to, uh, you know, p- pursue some of the academic interests to the fullest. And so until my final year at Stanford, I, I had really thought I would go play professionally. Um, unfortunately, I, I hurt my shoulder in my second to last year at Stanford. I was a pitcher. So that was, uh, you know, pretty damning for me. And, you know, that really just led to uh, my kind of shifting. And so, you know, when I jumped, you know, from baseball into what was going to be the quote unquote, real world, uh, I just started to evaluate what were the what were the skills I wanted to hone? And what were the uh, what were the opportunities I wanted to pursue? and, And how would I best fill those, fill those needs, uh, wh- what were the ways and the, and the career paths that were going to excite me and, and uh, fulfill my passions. And, you know, I, I really sought out mentors to help me figure that out and help me determine that path. It's a little bit hard and daunting when you're when you're on your own trying to figure it out because you don't know what the real world looks like. you don't know what all those different opportunities are or or how to go about them. and so I really relied on mentors to to guide me and to to tell me about what the different opportunities looked like out there whether it was in consulting or whether it was in investment banking and and uh, h- how you could use those as a foundation building experience to get into the private equity world or into the hedge fund world Um, i was fortunate enough to find an opportunity straight out of school to to get straight onto the quote-unquote buy side um, and uh, and really have enjoyed it since
0: for the people who are interested in sports um, uh, tell us more were you a good player did you ever think that uh you would you would very seriously get into sports because you have a very interesting Twitter description. Do you, uh, do you mind telling our users what it is?
1: Yeah, I do. So I uh, it's my personal claim to fame in my in my own mind at least. I gave up a grand slam, which you know for for d- different cultures may not know what that means. I suppose you know the equivalent in cricket is uh, you know like giving giving up a four or. Or, or worse um, but uh, you know you it, it, it was on ESPN uh, national television here in the United States in a really big game uh, and what was in front of about 10,000 fans at Florida State who were already booing and so it's a uh, it was one of those humbling experiences something that I can laugh about now although at the time it wasn't particularly funny. Um, I would say I was a good player, uh, at least in a relative sense. I uh, w- was always, um, you know, r- really enjoyed pitching. I was I was a pitcher and uh, was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to go play in college at Stanford. Um, I would say there was a, much deeper pool of talent uh, when I got to Stanford versus what I had experienced in my youth to date, whether it was in high school or, or at the younger levels. And so there was a, you know, a clear humbling experience in terms of going to a place where everybody was the star on their on their high school team and, and that type of humbling experience I think is really important in forming who you are and and showing you that you really are gonna need to work really hard, uh, push yourself in a number of ways in order to accomplish what you want to at that next level once you get there. And that that lesson I think applies much more broadly than just to sports.
0: Um, Well said. Uh, In your sporting career um, in school and in college, you were obviously above say a certain uh, threshold. At one point maybe you have dreams of playing more seriously even more seriously, rather. Um, when you were injured, um, what went through your mind? Was it a particularly um, depressing moment for you?
1: Yeah. yeah, quite a bit of disappointment associated with that. Uh, th- thinking back to it, frankly, I-, I was feeling mostly disappointed in that I let other people down. Uh, I-, I felt this uh, this pressure... And this weight on my back that, that had come from years of performing at a, at a high level in the sport that I uh, owed it to the people that had given me so much along the way to push this as far as I could. And, and I really felt like I was letting people down when I got hurt. Uh, and, and the reality is the people that have supported you all that way, uh, they, they love you and support you no matter what. And it wasn't the baseball success that was leading them to do that, and that that was a really comforting thing for me when I realized that and came to terms with that, because I didn't feel like I was letting myself down. I, I pushed myself as hard as I possibly could. I got the most out of the talent, my God-given talent, uh, and I can genuinely look in the mirror and say that to this day that I that I took it as far as I could. Uh, well, was it a bummer getting hurt? Absolutely, but but you know, with every cloud. Uh, yeah, there's a silver lining, and, and I really, I really do feel that in hindsight, that baseball was one of the best things in my life. Taught me so many incredible lessons, and most importantly, brought me some of the best friends uh, I've I've ever met, and and I will never regret having pursued that and and pushed it to the limits.
0: Uh, Could you talk to us about some of the lessons from baseball?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think the first one is being able to work with different types of people in a stressful environment is something that just applies everywhere you go in life i have always found in my in my working career that it, you just interact with hundreds of different types of people in the quote-unquote real world. You you have to be able to work on a team with people that are type A. uh, And like you, you have to be able to work uh, on a team with people that are type B and maybe uh, engage in uh, a totally different style of work than you. And being on a baseball team, it's 35 people in college. Everyone has a different personality. Everyone comes from a different background. Everyone uh, is motivated by different things, and, and you have to learn to operate in that environment and be a leader in that environment. Uh, and, and by the end of my time at Stanford, I'd really, I think, honed and learned those skills. Uh, so, so that was number one. The other one is just, it's a relentless, relentless work ethic uh, that, that I felt it instilled in me, because I wasn't the most talented person on the team ever. Uh, m- maybe when I was really young, but at Stanford in particular, I was mediocre from a talent perspective and so for me to achieve at the level where I ended up achieving it was all about just pushing myself harder than anybody else I I needed to be able to look in the mirror and say no one is outworking me uh, at this craft no one is going to be more dedicated more focused whether it was on the field or off the field and what I was eating how I was recovering uh, all of those aspects you, you just had to embrace and in order to achieve at a high level you had to be the best at that. Uh, and that has applied directly to how I think about the working world and how I think about my career and my profession is I just want to outwork people and, and I want to be more dedicated. I want to be reading more. I want to be learning more uh, and just constantly, constantly improving, uh, I, I would say, is one of the biggest lessons I learned and what I took away from it.
0: When you when you were injured and you started rebivoting, you had to basically come up with a new career plan since sports was not going, um, you know, where you thought it would. How do you go about it? You said you mentioned mentors. Uh, What else did you do? And when you went to your mentors, what did you say? Like, what was your uh, question like?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a very challenging thing for a lot of people. For me, I tried to sit down and think about what I really enjoy doing and, and what I enjoy learning about. And when I thought about my first career move, it was all to me about building a foundation for the rest of my career. I didn't worry so much about, let me go take the job that I'm going to have the rest of my life. I thought about it a lot more as, let me go take a job that's going to allow me to build the base of my house, so to speak, for the rest of my life, build a foundation of knowledge and of, of, uh, of perspectives that will allow me to continue to, propel myself forward. And so as I sat down and thought about it, for me personally, business was what I was really excited about. I I loved solving complex problems. I loved reading uh, books and stories about entrepreneurs, building businesses and the challenges they faced in building those businesses. And so then when I looked at the landscape of what I could possibly do, uh, the, the two main things that came to mind for building a foundation of knowledge in business were consulting and and banking. Uh, Both of those, I think for young people, offer a phenomenal opportunity to learn from the ground up, from analytics, from really just solving business problems at at their core. and what I found was that for me, private equity was the nexus of those two industries. Uh, you, you have the consulting side in terms of core operations and, and business building where you're working with the teams, you're working with the businesses that you've invested in to improve them and to create value. And then you have the banking side of things, the the financial engineering, the deal process, you know, working through the models and the nitty gritty of, of getting a deal done. Uh, what I found was that private equity combined the best of both worlds in a lot of ways for me. And so when I had the opportunity to jump straight into that or to evaluate opportunities in that space, it really seemed like a no brainer to me if I was able to do that.
0: What's private equity?
1: Did you say what is private equity? Yeah. So private equity in simple terms is just investing. Uh, the way we, The way we invest is what makes it unique in that we actually acquire majority interests in businesses and typically in private businesses. So where a hedge fund or an investment fund that operates in the public markets will invest in a stock, you know, they will buy 100 shares of Apple stock, but they don't have control over the strategic direction of Apple. They're hoping that Tim Cook and and the the leadership team at Apple continues to perform well and that the business continues to grow. For, For us, we go in and invest and partner with management teams to acquire a 50 plus percent stake in a business. And then we help them. We provide resources. I go in and help them. I work with them to actually drive the value creation of the business and help guide the strategic direction. Uh, so the way I think about it in general is it's no different than flipping a house. If you're familiar with real estate markets, you, you buy the house, you, you see the house, it's, it's an okay house but it could use a new roof. It could use some landscaping. Uh, We acquire the house, quote unquote, in this case, a company, and we go in and work on it to improve it. We clean up the shingles or patch the roof. We uh, do some landscaping on the lawn. And as a result, the house becomes more valuable. And we hope that the company is more valuable on the back end of our ownership so that we can sell it or take it public uh, in order to, uh, generate an attractive return for our investors.
0: Got it. Could you tell us the difference between say, venture capital, private equity, and say somebody who's an activist investor, because you do it in a very charming way on Twitter, uh, where a lot of our users send their questions looking at your feed. So maybe you could explain it in a way that will stick with our users. who are thinking about careers and building a foundation.
1: Yeah, I think of the whole industry as a spectrum. So so everything you're referring to is on the quote unquote buy side of the industry. And all that means is that you are the principal investor. Uh, you, you are actually making investments versus brokering, uh, which would be on the sell side. So on the buy side of the investment world, you have a spectrum of companies in terms of their maturity level. So venture capital is all the way on one end of the spectrum. That is investing in Anything from an idea, it's just an entrepreneur comes to you and has an idea to start a business. It's not really a business yet. It's more of an idea. It's very nascent. That is venture capital. That's all all the way on that end of the spectrum. As you move along the spectrum, you get into what's called growth equity, uh, which is a business that has started to generate revenue. It's growing quickly. Maybe it's break even from a cash flow standpoint, but it needs additional capital and support in order to continue its growth trajectory, so that's called growth equity. You then transition into where where we play uh, and, and where I've worked, which is traditional core private equity. Typically, we invest in larger businesses, significant revenue, and significant cash flows. So, uh, a cash flow positive um, business, cash generative business, and, and that that part of the spectrum is all on the private side typically. So venture capital all the way through private equity is investing in private companies typically. When you talk about activist investing or hedge funds, that all goes to the other end of the spectrum of size typically, which is large public companies. So I mentioned the Apple example. Uh, If you are a public investor like a Carl Icahn or a Berkshire Hathaway, uh, you go and you buy significant stake significant amounts of shares in these public companies and certain investors an activist investor like a bill Ackman people may know uh, will then uh, saber rattle or or make statements regarding the direction of the company to try to influence management to make strategic changes in order to create more value and that can be both in a positive way where they believe the the company should be worth more if it takes X Y or Z actions or it can be in a negative way where they say this company is a fraud and we believe it should be worth zero uh, and, and some activist investors pursue things that way as well.
0: Yeah, the barrier to entry to the private equity industry is very high. So, you know, many people want to work in that space, uh, but, but they're not able to. So... How did you end up breaking in and uh, how has your role evolved in the coming years? Uh, we would also love to understand if you, uh, if you could throw some light on how your day has changed, how your day at office was when you started out and now that you are more senior, what's the evolution like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So a bunch to unpack there. I, I agree with you. the The private equity industry has gotten increasingly competitive from a from a job standpoint over the last five ten years. I, I think it's really because there is just more and more uh, competition for for those roles. As people had made quite a bit of money in the early years of private equity, it drew more firms to raise capital in the space, which uh, which led to a lot of people being interested in getting into it from a junior role perspective. And so where when I applied to Altamont, my, to, to, my, to my current firm, uh, there was probably 100 applicants for the role, maybe, that, maybe not that many. Today, we get over 1000 applications for every role. Uh, which is just unbelievable to think about. I I laugh about it, but it's probably quite true that I I would not get my job today if I were applying for it because it's so competitive and the applicants are so, so impressive on paper. Uh, So for me, to be totally honest with you, it it was quite serendipitous how I landed in this job. Uh, I had a mentor who uh, I, I had been close with for quite some time, who had uh, started another private equity fund. Um, one of his partners had actually left and founded the firm that I ended up at, and he referred me to him for an initial conversation. We really hit it off, uh, and, and for me, the most important thing there was really going somewhere where I would love the people. Um, I had an opportunity at a at a big global consulting firm in New York City um, and had been thinking I was going to take that role. Um, and ultimately the firmware where where I ended up was, was small and pretty new at the time. And so it was actually a little bit of a, a little bit of a leap, um, to do that, but it it felt like the right move because the people were, um, were of such high caliber, uh, and it's played out very well in that regard. Uh, as you kind of move to the other pieces of your question regarding, um, uh, regarding what the actual role is and how it's changed over time i joined as an analyst um, so y- y- the the viewers might understand what that means but basically you are the you're doing the grunt work uh, that's the modeling it's the core analysis it's the powerpoints it's putting together presentations for uh, pitching different companies or opportunities it's in our case, supporting the value creation at the companies, helping our management teams to, to navigate in, in their new environments. And so when you're an analyst, that is your day-to-day. It is working, you're at, you're at a computer, you're at your desk. There was some travel involved, but it was primarily working on analysis, as, the, as your title implies. As my role has scaled over time, uh, yeah, I spent two years as an analyst, I spent a year and a half as an associate, a year as a senior associate, and now I'm a vice president. Over time, it became more and more about relationships and relationship management than analysis. Uh, So so where I spent almost every hour of the day in either Excel or PowerPoint when I first started, now that's probably 5% of my job. uh, And the vast majority of my job is really more commercial aspects, uh, really working with management teams directly, spending time with the CEOs and CFOs of our companies, going out and generating new potential business, going out and talking to uh, potential investment candidates going out and talking to investment bankers who might pitch us on new opportunities. It's a lot more of the actual interpersonal side of uh, of the world versus core analysis, which frankly, I enjoy more. And uh, I-, I always felt like I was a good analyst, but I think I'm a better vice president than I was an analyst. Um, and I hope that eventually I'm a better partner than I am a vice president. I, I just think that the as the role scales over time, it actually scales into what I feel my core skill set is, which is which is working with people. I love I love people. I love interacting with people. Uh, I love learning from meeting new people and new backgrounds. And so I, I hope that it continues to scale in the way that it has
0: today. Uh, what does a conversation with uh, with the management team look like um, without disclosing the name of any company? Could you just tell us that uh, how do you initiate such discussions or suppose the discussions already in, in play? How do you navigate your point of view? Because you're not the business owner, you're the investor. So one aspect is that they have to listen to you in, in some regards, but how do you make them listen to you? How do you yeah.
1: Do yeah it's a very challenging dynamic, uh, especially when you just consider the fact that i'm i'm twenty nine years old i uh, I clearly haven't been working for the last thirty years in in an industry, and so when you go in and you meet a new management team or when you're working with a new management team, there is a natural apprehension that they they have and should have about Who are these young guys coming in and and telling me how to do my job? I've been doing this forever. Um, And and so to me, it's always been about developing a relationship where they can trust you to be supportive of them. Uh, We do own the business, quote unquote, but but I tend to think of my role as wanting to be a tool in their tool belt is how I like to say it. I, I want them to feel like, like we are there to support them, not to kind of command and control them. Um, it, it should be a lot more partnership oriented, and and that's how I operate. That's always been my uh, my core mantra, and and how I like to work with the management teams I work with. And so I've been lucky enough to develop some great relationships with the CEOs um, where where I'm on the board uh, that are very collaborative, and they feel like they can come to me for things that they need to, and they also feel like they are empowered to go off and make decisions without having to get approval or come ask us. At the end of the day, it's all about partnership. We're partnering with great management teams because they are great at what they do. Uh, We feel there are opportunities for us to help improve those things on the margin, but not to go in and run the business. I am not an operator. I am not a CEO of a company, and I couldn't do that job. And so making sure they know that, I think is really important for building that rapport and building that trust uh, that becomes so critical in, in making it a good investment and, a,
0: and an attractive return. Um, I'm sure you have to read a ton and think a ton to be able to add constructive value to, um, to people and your investees. Uh, what does your information diet look like?
1: Oh boy, yeah, you're hitting on one of my favorite topics. I, uh, I am a voracious reader. Uh, and I read a little bit of everything, to be honest. I, I, I daily am always reading and staying up to date on, on current events because I'm a policy junkie and I love reading about policy. But from a work perspective, uh, I, I focus on the consumer industry in particular. So I'm constantly reading all the latest uh, developments in the consumer world, new trends that are happening. Over the last few years, the big trend has been e-commerce. Some people might have seen Shopify's earnings released today were incredible. So the trends that have been happening in omni-channel retail, I really am just uh, a nerd about, and I love reading about those areas and staying up to date on it. And as a result of that, it really helps me uh, create and drive strategy at our companies who are all navigating that same environment of change uh, that, that the rest of the world is. So, so that is a big one for me. I read a ton of books. I bounce all over the place. I'm a huge history buff. So I love reading history. Uh, I love reading about the history of things I'm interested in. So the history of money, the history of finance, I really, really enjoy. And, and none of that, I would say, applies totally directly to my job or to what I do on a daily basis, but I find that there are so many little ways it's helped me understand problems that come up or relate to people uh, or just interact on a daily basis at a higher level than I used to before I started reading a lot. Uh, I loved reading as a kid, and then somewhere along the way in high school and in college, I sort of lost my joy for it. I think when you have and you're being forced to read certain things for classes, it removes some of the excitement and some of of the natural joy that comes with reading. Uh, And so only in the last five years, I've really refound that joy. It's become my, my number one hobby to be totally honest with you. Uh, And, and it's a big part of my daily life is just, I I spend the first hour of every day reading um, just as a way to clear my mind and, and really kick off my day.
0: So you don't jump for your phone as soon as you wake up? I try
1: not to. I I will admit that the first thing I do when I wake up uh, is make sure that there are no fires that I need to put out um, and that typically is a quick scroll through my email. Uh, It just has become a habit and it's not the best habit in the world. I wish I could stop but I, I try to be responsive, and so if there are any fires that need putting out uh, at any of our companies or with any of the deals I'm working on, I really do like to be someone that people can rely on, and that's important to me, that, that I'm responsive and get back to people quickly, and um, that, is, that does end up being the first thing I do to start the day, although I wish it weren't. And How
0: do you um, – what do you avoid – reading and what do you uh, read more carefully the reason we asked this question actually that one of our uh, subscribers sent this question was that she was trying to figure out what to avoid and in this information overload how you look for insights so what's your advice there
1: yeah i avoid reading headlines uh, n- news headlines that's a good one yeah i i have found that over the last two, three years, the news headlines uh, have have gotten increasingly polarizing and increasingly biased. Uh, y- you read a headline and it leads you to a conclusion that really the facts of the article and the facts of the story might not, might not support. And, and so typically, if there's a story that I'm interested in learning about, I really try to read the source information versus reading the headline and, and having a takeaway. Uh, because at the end of the day, and, and I candidly don't fault the media companies for this as much as most people do. It's their job to drive clicks and to drive eyeballs. That is their business model. That's how they make money. And so if you have a headline that is catchy that people want to click on or look at, that is how they make money. Um, and so whether it's in, you know, in the U S whether it's CNN or Fox news, uh, what they traffic in is polarizing headlines that grab their readers. Um, But what that means for somebody that's really trying to get to the facts is you have to actively avoid falling into the trap that they're setting for you. And so a big part of that to me is just avoid reading headlines.
0: What does working on a deal really look like? Uh, Give us um, the inside (laughs) juicy details. Yeah, I wish
1: it was as glamorous as it sounds. Uh, It is a lot of hard work. Uh, I hadn't appreciated it before I joined, but the level of detail that goes into getting a transaction done to acquiring a company is just enormous. Uh, When you acquire a business, you acquire everything that comes with it. it. You're acquiring all of its historic liabilities, the the things they've done in the past, the business they've done in the past, and then obviously the future projections and how they can do. And so there's so much that goes into a understanding what the business does and what its future potential is, uh, be understanding the industry, everything about it. What are all the potential watchouts? What does the competitive landscape look like? Uh, And then as you evaluate the future of this business, what are the roadblocks? What is going to stop it from achieving that future, the future that you're envisioning for it? Uh, To me, it all boils down to figuring out, does this business have uh, a moat? Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger talk about this a lot, but it's, does this business have true competitive differentiation that will allow it to sustain an advantage over the long run? When we invest we have a long time horizon. So we invest over a five to 10 year period. It could even be longer. And so for us, we have to think about this business is great today. Fine. Will it be great in five years uh, and even better than it is today? And then for a future buyer who would buy the business from us, is it going to look like it will be great for the next five years after our ownership period? Because that's what they would be investing in. Um, and it's a tricky thing. It's it's very challenging to to do all of that work and evaluate it. And that's just on the business side to determine if it's a good investment. Then you go into all the nitty gritty of getting the legal documentation done of a deal, getting the uh insurance documentation done uh, around uh, around the business getting the tax diligence done getting the financials vetted to make sure that the numbers are real uh i mean you've seen all these crazy cases that have come up recently in the public markets wirecard the german company Uh, Luckin Coffee had the incident, the Chinese company. Um, You have to make sure that the numbers are real um, and that there's not anything fishy going on. And so there's all this nitty gritty that goes in. That's kind of the sausage making of the deal process. The most interesting part is really figuring out the business and the industry and the competitive landscape. Um, And that's probably only 20% of the amount of time you
0: have to spend to actually get a deal done. Understood. Um, Let's talk about Luckin for a second. I know you can't comment too much on it, um, but uh, there's a super interesting tweet thread uh, that we have. um, uh, You call it the Luckin Coffee Fraudicino. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, yeah, like the idea is not to go into luck in coffee per se, but how do you avoid a luck in coffee and maybe for, for, for 30 seconds if you could introduce what uh, luck in coffee controversy is to the uninitiated. That'll be great.
1: Yeah. uh, So it's a funny thread that you mentioned. I I, just with my Twitter, I love, you know, these tongue in cheek uh, tweet threads that I'll do from time to time. I really try to just break down and simplify some of these financial frauds and the different stories from the financial world so that they're more accessible for people. Um, The Luckin Coffee one, was a was a real shocker that was a a real darling uh, of the public markets it's a th- i think think of it as a starbucks uh, it's a coffee shop based in uh, based in China. Um, they had grown at an unbelievable pace uh, and basically it came out that they were propping up their revenues. There was a lot of fake revenue in the business. Um, they had created some separate unaffiliated entities that were uh, buying vouchers, which were essentially creating revenue for Luck and Coffee without the revenue actually being there. Um, A really, really crazy story. Uh, And frankly, one that it's incredible to me that it wasn't exposed earlier. It came out as a result of a bunch of research that short sellers in the market had done into the business practices. Uh, In terms of how to prevent those kind of things from happening, my biggest one is that the auditors um, need to be more serious about, about their role. Uh, we've seen things for a number of years, going back to the Enron case in the United States uh, with Arthur Anderson um, and, and others, but the auditors, that's their job is, is to figure out whether there are things going on in the business financially that are not appropriate. Uh, they're supposed to bet that in, in a way uh, in the U S right now, The the big question is whether uh, these Chinese listed, the the, the U.S. listed Chinese companies should have U.S. audit requirements um, because currently they don't. And that has been an issue with with companies like Luckin. Uh, I, I personally think that if, if you're going to be listed on on a U.S. stock exchange, you should have a U.S.-based auditor perform the audit. Um, but I understand there are multiple sides to that argument, and I could frankly go either way on it. But I do think that there's a, uh, there's a real onus on U.S. regulators to make some sort of decision around that, uh, because a lot of U.S. investors were really harmed by that kind of fraud.
0: How did your know, passion for uh, sort of democratizing insights and in finance come about? Uh, we briefly discussed, uh, we discussed uh, some of the longer term projects that you could embark upon. But I really love this because one thing that the finance world uh, is often um, blamed for is just making things a bit too complicated and then falling for the same complication that they fell for. Bill Ackman, yeah. Yeah. a few companies, you tweeted about one coffee chain. Um, why, why so much complexity? And is that where your frustration stemmed from? Walk us through uh, this mini project that you have.
1: Yeah, yeah it, it's really come about quite organically, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I mentioned at the outset that my mother is from India. I spent a lot of time in India growing up, have a lot of family there. And one of the things I've always been passionate about has been education. Uh, what I saw as a child growing up and spending time both in the U.S. and in India was that the, the fact that talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. There were all these children in India that were simply not having the same opportunities that, that I was having as a kid. And that always disturbed me from, from a young age. And so as I think about the current world and the opportunity that these platforms give you, it's really to more evenly distribute opportunity. Uh, People around the world now can learn from online portals, can learn from these platforms, develop relationships with people across the world. It's this really seminal moment for education more broadly. Uh, As I thought about my perspective on it, the world of finance, as you say, has thrived on being overly complex. It has, in my opinion, done so in order to insulate itself. I think the people that are on the inside, quote unquote, uh, want to keep it that way. And that means keeping other people out and keeping themselves protected in. And they do that by overcomplicating things that personally I don't think should be so complicated. Uh, Financial advisors, wealth advisors, et cetera, they want you to feel like you can't manage your own money. They want you to feel like you don't understand retirement. You don't understand the stock market and your finances. Uh, you don't understand ETFs and index funds. And these are really basic concepts that we just don't do a good job of teaching to people in a basic way. Uh, so what I saw when I started in on this Twitter adventure was the entire world of, of financial Twitter or FinTwit, as people call it, um, it is really complicated. It's a lot of stuff that frankly goes over my head and I work in this industry. And so the the other end of the spectrum where I tried to head was, let me simplify things. Let me democratize this information and really allow it to reach the masses and engage with the masses on it. Um, I, I find it to be a noble mission. I, I've really enjoyed getting to interact with people and see them benefit from the information that I'm sharing. Um, and I think it's, one small step in the right direction towards making people feel more independent and, and more financially empowered, um, which in the broader scheme of education and, and spreading opportunity more evenly across the world, I think is a, is a great and noble cause.
0: Yeah, I mean, you began this answer by talking about the Shirky principle, where you create a problem where you're the only person who can solve it, and you it's, it's in your interest to preserve the problem. So I think uh, some would blame the finance world for, for, for that. Um, but in general, I feel that uh, being an investor, uh, a successful one, requires one to have a strong set of fundamentals, mental models, uh, there's elements of being a contrarian. Because uh, Honestly, not all funds make money. In fact, very few do. Not all investors are very successful financially or otherwise. Um, How are you training yourself to build and become a better independent thinker? You spoke about reading. You spoke about democratizing. But are there some things that you've been doing consistently through your 20s, maybe perhaps earlier, that have helped all of it come together? How are you becoming a better thinker or trying to become a better thinker? a great question.
1: My number one policy is that if I develop a perspective on anything, the first thing I do after I developed my own perspective is seek someone out that has the opposite perspective as me and talk to them about it. I I've always found that the natural tendency people have is to develop a perspective and then only seek out confirmation of that perspective so you you just fall into this confirmation bias uh tunnel vision on whatever your thesis is and it's a real trap because what ends up happening is anything that conflicts with your thesis, you throw out the door and you didn't see it out of sight, out of mind. And anything that confirms your thesis, you kind of put as a check mark and you're so smart and you're right. Uh, and, and it's dangerous. And in investing, it will kill you uh, in the long run, I think, if you do that because you will completely ignore the reasons that your investment thesis might not make sense. Uh, and at the end of the day, as you said, you make money in the long term as an investor uh, by picking things and being right about things that not everyone is already thinking about or picking. Um, you, you have to have been early, uh, in something or, or, uh, got in at the right time on something. And it's, it's naturally contrarian and you have to be that way. Um, so I think that that's my number one, it's my number one rule. And it's come about because I've made that mistake in the past. Uh, like anything else you learn from your mistakes, uh, I've made investments in the past where I didn't do that. And in hindsight, in evaluating what led to those mistakes, that was what it was. It was it was allowing myself to fall victim to confirmation bias.
0: Understood. Um, so, I, with this mentality, how does politics play out for you? <laughs> how do you do you enjoy discussion in politics? Because you know, you as you said, you're a policy junkie as well, which means that you know, you must be viewing the world both as a private equity person, maybe as a, um, as a slightly different person as well. So how does that work out? Do you get riled up or do you end up riling others?
1: Yeah, I, I am a very balanced person when it comes to policy, uh, which you don't find a lot of, uh, especially not in America today, uh, for anyone that's familiar with American politics, um, I tend to lean towards providing the opposite perspective to whatever anyone is saying. Uh, So that does lead to me accidentally riling up people, uh, either my family or my friends. Um, I've talked about this with a lot of my good friends recently that people only want confirmation of their ideas and of their thoughts. And we live in these bubbles. I, I live in San Francisco. San Francisco is Uh, a real bubble. In 2016, uh, you couldn't find a single person that was going to vote for Donald Trump. Lo and behold, behold, there were a lot of people that did. Um, And and so if you you live in these bubbles, both intellectually and physically, um, it's very, very difficult for you to break out of them. Uh, and, And it's very, very difficult for you to see what the actual world looks like around you uh and and so for me i I generally just try to take and see both sides of any given issue whatever i believe is right or or wrong internally i try to really understand and develop a perspective around around both ends does that lead to riling people up in conversation sometimes sure um but i'm not argumentative um when it comes to policy I, i think i have a generally balanced view on things i would consider myself a a radical moderate, uh, <laughs> if that's a phrase.
0: Why we make it one?
1: Yeah, and I, yeah, I'm interested in policy in the long run. I, I would love to serve uh, and and be a public servant at some point in my life, whether that's um, you know in a higher office or whether that's in a, at the state level. I, I would just love to give back in that way. I, I fundamentally disagree with the. The notion of career politicians. Um, that's been one of my biggest issues with American politics is I just don't think uh, the founding fathers had career politician in mind as a as a role that people would serve. I, I kind of ascribe to the Benjamin Franklin um, uh, perspective on politicians, which is you you serve in industry for your career and then you leave for a period of time to be a public servant before going back to industry. Uh, and I think that our politics and our political landscape would be a lot better and cleaner and more productive if if we went back to that mantra and that ethos
0: so i think culture must have been a very interesting subject for you as well i mean just for your upbringing your parents your family uh, balancing baseball and cricket and bollywood and hollywood <laughs> and san francisco and boston and new delhi maybe um <laughs> talk to us about uh, some of the dilemmas or questions uh, that you had or still have and uh, how have they shaped you
1: yeah yeah it's a great question uh v- very deeply is the short answer my um so i come from a multicultural background my father is uh american jewish uh uh white from from the bronx in new york my mother as i mentioned is is um, from Bangalore uh, and, and grew up there and came over for college. They met um, while crossing over at Princeton. Uh, when, when my parents wanted to get married, my, my father's parents didn't accept it. Uh, they, they didn't accept him wanting to marry uh, someone that wasn't white, for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, right. It made him choose uh, between them, uh, his family, and, Between her, the the woman he loved, Um, and fortunately for me, sitting here, he chose her. Uh, But but as a result, I've never met um, my dad's direct family, Um, and so growing up, I really sought to embrace everybody. Um, You know, I grew up. What I learned from that was more about love um, than about hate. Yeah, I, I found that clearly there was a, um, there was hate that could have come from that incident and and what my father had to go through. But really what it taught me about was about love. Uh, he, he had found someone that he loved and he was willing to throw everything away for that. Um, and I, I am very fortunate for that. My parents are the two most amazing people I know, um, and have been endlessly loving and supportive of my sister and myself. Um, and so that just taught me a lot about who I want to be and the type of person I want to be in the long run and the the type of the type of father, the type of husband, the type of brother i want to be uh, in the long run and the type of friend i want to be to to those around me
0: all right no i mean I mean you painted a way positive you took it really positively, but I'm sure it wasn't uh. It wasn't all easy for your folks and for yourself. Uh, you know, This is not the most conventional or easy to deal with situation. So full marks for reconciling with the situation. Now, um, Just towards the final few minutes of uh, the show, how do you relax? Do you relax now or does one always find you bettering yourself, making the world a better place and uh, you know, creating financial value for your clients?
1: I try to relax. Uh, It's a a good question. You'd have to ask my wife. Um, She she is incredible uh, and extremely forgiving of the amount that I uh, am working or the amount that I'm constantly involved in something or the other. we do find time to relax. Uh, we both love reading. So we'll go sit outside and uh, I love reading science fiction when I'm trying to relax with something that is not totally related to work or developing myself in some way. Um, I love playing golf. Uh, so, so getting outside and having an athletic outlet, uh, in order to unwind, uh, I find all of those things to be, um, to be really productive in terms of just letting me, uh, really relax the relax the mind and just uh, unwind, get some fresh air. Um, and we like watching trashy television shows every now and then uh, in order to unwind and just completely get away. Um, but during the, uh, you know, during the coronavirus time and being stuck at home, uh, it's really been a cool period to just spend time together and, and have a chance to, to unwind in a, you know, in a more mutual context in that way. Got it
0: any contrarian coronavirus uh, predictions for for the world at large
1: contrarian i don't know i, I would have said it was contrarian a while ago i, I, I felt like uh that there were a few things i was looking at one i don't think the airline industry ever comes back uh to uh to where it was i, I think business travel which is too much of their revenue and profit uh, will never rebound to the levels where it was previously. Too many people have realized that a lot of those trips were unnecessary and can be done via a video um, like this. We're connecting across the world uh, <laughs> over the course of an hour. It's really incredible. Um, I would say I think flight from the cities is another one that I, I firmly believe in, especially in America. I think you're going to see a mass movement out of cities uh, as remote work becomes more of the norm and people no longer have to rely on cities for high-paying jobs. I think that plays out in a number of ways. Um, The rise of the freelance economy, I think, is going to be a huge one. Um, And it's one that I'm looking to personally invest in. I think there's incredible opportunity there for businesses um, and for entrepreneurs that are looking to have their careers championed by these new platforms. Um, so I'm excited about those. I, I don't I, I don't know if I would consider it contrarian anymore. Maybe it was a few months ago, um, but uh, some exciting stuff going to be happening for sure. This was a, a real accelerating event for the world. I think some of these trends were already in motion, but it's, it's pushed them forward 10, 20 years.
0: My last question to you was about uh, your future. I mean, just as a thought experiment, do you have um, a thesis of where you would be, say, five years from now, 10 years from now, and 25 years from now?
1: <laughs> I wish I could give you one. Uh, if I knew where I was going to be, um, I, I don't know. It, it's, that's really tough for me to say. If I, I started working only six years ago, um, and I never could have predicted where I was going to be today, Uh, I started this whole adventure with financial education and Twitter two months ago, uh, and I never could have predicted where it's going to be today. I'm a big believer in power laws uh, and exponential growth, and I just think it's hard to predict. It's hard for your mind to wrap around those kind of changes and that kind of growth. I intend to be constantly learning and constantly curious, and wherever that takes me, I'm going to be excited about it. Uh, I want to jump at exciting new opportunities. I hope to work with incredible people along the way, but where it winds, w- winds up going, your guess is as good as mine, frankly. Yeah,
0: but I love that, you know, following your curiosity and compounding growth every day. I think that should be the mantra. Many people come to us and ask, hey, what's what should be my career strategy? Um, I mean, part of the answer is let serendipity take its course, have a hypothesis, and then let's see where it goes. But hey, I'm a big believer
1: a in that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Engineered serendipity. Engineered serendipity. We're going to call your episode this, Engineered Serendipity with Sahil. Hey, this was fun, Sile. I had uh, a terrific time, and this is going to be available on Network Capital TV and all uh, other platforms in an audio course as well as a video course. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.